The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. My name is Margot Landman, Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Dr. Gerald Postiglioni, Chair Professor in Higher Education at the University of Hong Kong. He is a renowned expert on Chinese education, especially higher education. Jerry, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. You're welcome, Margot. Glad to be here. There are so many topics to cover, even if we try to limit ourselves to the internationalization of higher education in China. Let's start at the broad level of definitions. What does internationalization consist of? When did it begin and why? Well, internationalization is a tricky term in China. In fact, it is used in a, a hesitating fashion at times, particularly of, as far as government policy goes. The term Dui Wai, toward the outside, is usually the way that uh, it is discussed in formal settings in China. However, on university campuses, there's a clear initiative to internationalize. And in fact, the internationalization specifically of the top tier universities in China has been quite impressive. Now, that ranges from uh, uh, the teaching of English at one level to the uh, uh, hosting of it more international conferences to the recruitment of international students, or what the Chinese call foreign students. And uh, it also involves the, the reform of curriculum and the studying of uh, the management of institutions, uh, international uh, higher education institutions, for, for how to see how, uh, how that uh, can be used in China. And finally, of course, is the, uh, the excellence initiatives, which were really motivated very much by the ranking of uh, universities, the international ranking of universities, which began around 1998 or 1999, and uh, China has uh, moved in that direction as well to internationalize for global rankings. And you didn't even mention Chinese students going overseas to study, and which is happening in increasing numbers. What are they looking for, and do they find it? Well, you know, Chinese students have been going overseas for quite a while. Uh, I remember uh, the uh, science advisor to Jimmy Carter was in, in Beijing, and uh, he made a call at uh, 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning to say that uh, Deng Xiaoping wants 10,000 Chinese students to go immediately to study in the U.S. And, uh, of course, those numbers increased. They used to be the the, what they call the Gong Pai, the government sent students, and then now what we find is where even uh, middle class families are even sending their children to secondary school in the U.S. so they can get a leg up on the on the um, on the uh, GREs and, and get into good universities. The numbers have ballooned. The U.S. is still well, not only Chinese students go all over the place, but the U.S. still leads, and uh, though those numbers are quite. Uh, significant. 
And, and of course the question is, do they return or, or, or not? But the, the flip side is that China is, according to the official statistics, the third most uh, popular destination for foreign students after the U.S. and uh, the U.K. Uh, now, those numbers are a little tricky because they also involve uh, short-term students, students studying Chinese and so on, but China plans to increase that number steadily, and I think it, they will become number two after a while. And then you have the new initiative, the One Belt, One Road initiative, which is going to bring many, many more foreign students to, uh, to China. Um, so China has internationalized its student population and will continue to. And of course this has implications for the soft power of China. And uh, we're only at the the uh, early stages uh, of this, the embryonic uh, stage of internationalization. So it'll be interesting to see what that means uh, for China's um, uh, interest now, new interest in uh, taking a, a more uh, direct role in, uh, in the global community. One of the aspects of Chinese internationalization or globalization is liberal arts education at home in China. In this country, liberal arts education emphasizes a certain breadth of study that's intended to teach habits of mind, how to study critical thinking, creativity, innovation, Chinese education officials talk about these things, but do they actually teach them? And if not, what are some of the obstacles to liberal education as we define it or we think about it? Yes, this is a fascinating area of reform in Chinese education, and uh, it hasn't yet, uh, I think, solidified. Maybe it won't. But the main driver for this, Marco, is, uh, as you would expect, economic development. China has to restructure its economy, and therefore um, China looks overseas and, and sees countries, uh, again, like the U.S., that uh, are very good at innovation. And uh, much of the responsibility for that is seen as being uh, based in, in the U.S. liberal arts, uh, not only liberal arts colleges, which in fact have been on the decline in the U.S., but liberal arts higher education. So China is definitely moving uh, toward this direction, but it's, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of questions about what's the difference between liberal arts, which China calls Boya Jiaoyu, or, or general education, Tongshi Jiaoyu. Um, and um, this is quite different. Um, in, in China right now, for most of the universities, it's a question of just having students, for example, who are in the sciences, engineering, and so on, to take courses in humanities and social science. But as we know, it's a bit, bit more than that. Now, Peking University, with its uh, program of the Yuanpei program and, and, and the Xinya program at, at, uh, at uh, Tsinghua University, these are more like what we think of liberal arts, higher education, but they're not for all the students, they're for a select number of students, uh, as you know. And, uh, and the way you'd really find it is where I've recently been, 
uh, in the last few months uh, at NYU in Shanghai and, and Duke Quinshen, a few days ago I was there, and we, in both places we had conferences on liberal arts um, higher education in China. So there's a lot of discussion about this in the journals, or uh, have many, many more articles about, about this. The, um, so it's, it's evolving, it's very important because as China starts to establish universities on the Belt and Road, the question is, will its general education curriculum, whatever that means, or liberal arts curriculum, will that also be occurring uh, in these countries, which of course China would want to adapt its model to the Belt and Road and what, is, what does that mean. So we um, are seeing a lot of interest in liberal arts in China, but what that means and how it aligns with uh, particularly political education, which uh, is part of the preliminary uh, curriculum, and, uh, and um, there obviously would be some limitations. But then again, we're talking about a Chinese liberal arts education rather than a, a Western liberal arts education. And there, there will be an evolution of a Chinese model, um, you know, based somewhat in Confucianism and, uh, and Chinese intellectual uh, history. And also it will have to align with contemporary political, social, and economic directives uh, of the party at the universities, which is quite important. You mentioned just now NYU Shanghai, Duke Quinshan, there are more and more Sino-Foreign joint ventures in education. How do they fit into the picture, and what role or roles have they played in Chinese higher education? Yeah, this is a, this is a great question because uh, it was asked at a meeting at Duke Quinshan about uh, a week ago or less. Uh, about the influence, the question of influence, and uh, we we discussed that we had specialists uh, from from around the world and and from different sectors of the of the uh, higher education system. And uh, I'll just give you my view. My personal view is that it will not. Um, these campuses are looked at as experimental places to observe. Um, but I do not think they will have an influence on the larger system. Now, the reason I say that is because I have been working in a part of China, which is a special administrative region, which has uh, almost 10 universities, and three of them are um, noted uh, research universities with very high global rankings, and uh, in fact, up until last year or so, they, they were ranked higher than any of the universities in China, mainland, but they didn't really have any influence on the larger system. They're very different academic culture, governance uh, types of institutions. And uh, so I, I doubt that the two campuses, the NYU campus and the Duke campus, uh, despite the good work that they do, will have uh, any significant influence on the larger system. Although I think it shows the willingness of China to have more diversity in its university system. And this is one of the things which is often mentioned in official documents, to diversify the system. And, and that gets to, maybe, 
educational sovereignty, institutional autonomy. Can you define those terms and then talk about how they and internationalization might be balanced or might be competing with each other? How do they fit together? Yeah, again, another good question. Um, the challenge for the university system, I think, in the next uh, few years, certainly, is how to handle a deepening of internationalization, which is, is definitely uh, part of the, the evolution of the higher education system, but at the same time, to protect what's called educational sovereignty. Meanwhile, the universities in China uh, are going to gain a bit more of uh, managerial autonomy as far as curriculum goes. Uh, that this, this, this has to happen. Uh, now, now th this issue of the state's role in higher education is actually not just the China uh, characteristic. East Asia, whether it's Japan or whether it's uh, uh, South Korea, uh, Vietnam, uh, China, Taiwan, very heavy um, state support for higher education, which has turned out to be extremely useful. But now it's getting to a certain point where the state needs to step back a little. As the universities become highly ranked and uh, the quality uh, is, is such that they can now uh, take on a lot of the managerial functions uh, they, they need, in short, they need uh, to have a little bit more. To, so how, how to do all three, deep internationalization, how to give the universities more autonomy, meanwhile how to protect educational sovereignty. I think any two are easy, but to do the three of them together uh, is extremely uh, tricky and difficult. Educational sovereignty for China, of course, involves simple things, uh, not simple but important things like, like the financial aspects. Uh, when you have uh, 2,000 or so uh, foreign, uh, Sino-foreign uh, degree programs in China, there's a lot of issues about finance, uh, land, and so on, which, which is, is part of it. I think that's a little bit easier to solve than the other part concerning um, uh, the, uh, the ideological aspects of higher education and how that um, the, 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 there, there's clearly the notion that uh, China will tailor uh, what it learns globally as it has in the special economic zones, tailor it for um, the China system. So um, we'll, we'll see this evolve, but certainly there are, I think, lots of expectations from the West that China will... Um, become isomorphic its system will you know become very much like the um, the western system but i don't see uh how that uh, will really uh, happen i think it will retain a different quality just as the economy uh the chinese economy uh, has its own uh, model and uh, that will will become clear i think in in higher education as well uh, now, what that means ex precisely, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's on the move right now. So uh, we'll have to see it evolve. 
And maybe in the background of the discussion, particularly of educational sovereignty and to a lesser extent institutional autonomy, is the question of regime stability. How do the authorities balance the pursuit of creativity and innovation, which they think is necessary for economic reform and economic effective competition yeah, with yeah. the rest of the world with regime stabi stability? Are these goals, by definition, contradictory? Great question, Margot. To us, this seems to be an impossible task to maintain stability at the same time you open the system. But in China, it's not uh, generally looked at that way. Of course, the emphasis in China is economic development and social stability. These are the number one and two virtues of the regime. And, uh, you know, we hear this in Hong Kong all the time about stability and prosperity, stability and prosperity. Now, part of the answer to this is, I think, China is so large that it can have amazing pockets of innovation and creativity at the same time that the system as a whole uh, retains an emphasis on, uh, on stability, regime stability. And as, as you know, lately, in the last, uh, particularly the last year or so, uh, the universities have been, uh, the atmosphere at the universities has moved uh, much more toward uh, a tightening of ideological control and, and so on. Now, how does that happen at the same time that the leadership is really promoting innovation and stability? Again, this is China. Uh, it's, it's not as easy for us to, to see how that happens. But, um, you know, you, you look around and you see um, Huawei, uh, a, a very innovative uh, company in China, uh, WeChat, uh, the evolution of WeChat. Now, now although there, there is still uh, a lot of uh, tech copying of technology and so on, we can clearly see uh, innovation beginning in different sectors. And the same thing uh, we'll, um, we'll see in, in the system. So I think the, the fact that the system is so large, um, it, even, even if a, a, just a quarter of the system becomes uh, very innovative, that's that's about as large as the system uh, in in another country like the U.S. Right. Yeah. Let's get back to Hong Kong sure. for a minute, and I think this is probably our last okay. question. There, just as there has been pressure politically on Chinese mainland institutions, there also seems to be some political pressure arguably from Beijing, arguably with intermediaries in Hong Kong on institutions of higher education in Hong Kong. What, therefore, do you think are the prospects of independent liberal education in Hong Kong? Sure. Um, let me uh, begin by saying that there has never been uh, a case of anyone in Hong Kong universities, any of the universities, uh, being fired for uh, political reasons, political views. That's clearly um, one of the 
the great things about the Hong Kong higher education system. There's, in Hong Kong, there's, there's very little uh, money for research and development comparatively to other systems around the world. Yet, Hong Kong's academics are extremely productive. They're noted for that, and I think part of the reason, a major reason, is uh, the atmosphere. It's a very open and free academic system. And I think that hasn't changed. Now, that doesn't mean that um, there, um, that, that local academics who are uh, opposed to um, the regime, Beijing's intervention in Hong Kong, they're opposed, uh, are not criticized in some of the local media by, um, for example, the, uh, uh, the, the, the people at the liaison office, for example, that might be very critical of local Hong Kong academics in the press. Uh, however, in the, in the universities, they have maintained uh, uh, academic uh, freedom uh, and, uh, and institutional autonomy. Uh, Hong Kong is also noted uh, for that, that the universities have a, a high degree of institutional autonomy, despite the fact that they get a significant amount of their funding from government. You know, about from 60, the Chinese from, government? No, from the, from the Hong Kong government. Uh -huh. From the Hong Kong government, approximately 60% of its recurrent expenditures. That's pretty high when you look at the state universities in the United States. So Hong Kong has it uh, both ways. In, uh, lots of institutional autonomy from government, lots of academic freedom in the universities, and, uh, and, and still a significant amount of funding from government, al although the GDP for research and development is relatively low. Uh, how, uh, however, at the same time, that uh, it, it doesn't mean that there isn't uh, uh, um, um, self-censorship. I mean, there was self-censorship during the colonial era, there's self-censorship now. How much self-censorship? Difficult to measure. How do you measure self-censorship? Um, so, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, you get a certain amount in every system. So this is a, an interesting uh, area, of course, to think about. But... Uh, what you can also say uh, regarding the question of uh, liberal arts in Hong Kong, uh, in beginning in about 2012, the universities in Hong Kong moved from being three-year specialized uh, degree programs in higher education modeled on the UK system, which had a three-year university system, and of course an extra year in senior secondary school since about 2012, the universities have moved to four-year uh, degree systems with a year of liberal arts. Uh, we call our, our program the Common Core at the University of Hong Kong. Mm. And um, so it's been fully implemented uh, in Hong Kong. And uh, we started from scratch. Uh, we discussed uh, what's important, what's the mission of higher education. And uh, we, although part of the emphasis was to make students more innovative, to get Hong Kong's economy moving, the other side was to, uh, to fortify the development of a civil society and also to focus on uh, student developments, how students uh, um, see their, their role as citizens. Of course, we also have the term global citizenship as a key part of what we call the common core in higher education. Now, this is a little different in the mainland. Global citizenship is not really the, the concept. Uh, it's more of, uh, you know, national unity, but learning uh, from people in other countries, it's a different kind of uh, concept. But uh, thank you so much for all of these uh, very good questions. Thank you very much for talking with me today. You're very welcome.